These stories are Indian, Persian, Arabic, Egyptian, Chinese, West African, and French. But the telling is mine, and they are my responsibility in the tradition of the oral storyteller. So I hope you'll forgive any embellishments, deviations, or outright flights of fancy that I indulge in as I tell them to you. Hello everyone. Today, we'll spend a night in the bedchamber of Shariar, the tyrannical king of the Sassanids. This is Breakfast with Gilgamesh. Many thousands of nights passed, there lived two kings, Shariar, the mighty king of the Persian Sassanid Empire, and his brother Shazaman, where Shariar was a firm man, quick in temper and swift in exacting it. Shazaman was more temperate. He fancied himself a progressive king, not so held down by the brutal legacy of his station. One morning, Shazaman gathered his hunting party and made leave for the royal woods to hunt deer and chase wolves from the wilderness. As he galloped through the courtyard gates, he realized that he had forgotten his favorite pipe on the bedside table. Not wanting to trouble his servants, he dismounted and commanded everyone wait for him. Shazaman strolled back through the gates and decided to cut through the garden to save time, not wanting to waste any more daylight on such a trivial thing. As he plodded through the bushes and hummed to himself, he saw beyond the thick trunks of the date palms which lined the garden courtyard a most peculiar thing. A group of slave girls, writhing on the ground, moaning and grasping at one another, right there in the grass under the shadow of the date trees. He crouched down and got closer, slinking behind one of the great trees and watching. He got close enough to see that half of these slave girls weren't slave girls at all, but men, lithe and beautiful, dark of skin and slick with sweat, making love to the other half, who were what they at first appeared to be. Shazaman thought the whole scene most comedic, these men dressed as women, running in the dirt with the very things they pretended to be. He wondered if he should pop out from behind the tree and clear his throat, cluck his tongue, and scare the living daylights out of them all. He almost did just that, but froze when he noticed that on the glistening back of one of these men was a fair hand, pressing nails into flesh, each finger adorned in ornate golden jewelry. It was the queen, making passionate love to a man Shazaman, now recognized as the cook who served him his breakfast that morning. Shazaman sunk behind the tree and retched, then vomited. Shazaman collected himself, and disgust turned to despair, then despair turned to wrath. He made his way through the garden to the gates, pulled the scimitar from his horse, stormed back to the garden, and marched past the palm trees. The other slaves saw him coming and scattered over the garden walls every which way. His wife and the cook continued to make love, so enamored with their passion that they did not notice death's approach. Shazaman threw the scabbard of his blade and lifted the sword high so that it glimmered in the sun. The queen caught a flash in her eye before her naked body was caked in the gore of her lover. She screamed in horror as the cook's head fell to her bare chest, but did not have even a moment to plead before her own head was severed by the king's blade. Shariar received his brother with open arms. Dear brother, dear grieved brother, your every need will be met in my palace. Your every wish will be granted. 
Shahzaman spent his days laying in the opulent gardens and pristine rooms of his brother's immense palace. He drank himself into stupors and lay with many slave girls. He heard the finest musicians and the most elegant poets proclaim his praises and regale him with song and story. But his melancholy was too deep. His thoughts were with his betrayal at all times. His justice was not enough to sate his misery. The two who had treasoned against him were in the deepest pits of hell, but they were together, and he was alone. One morning, Shariar woke his brother up, just as the sun was climbing over the eastern horizon. He shook Shahjaman's shoulders and boomed. Brother, today is a hunting day. Gather yourself and we'll make to the woods to hunt leopards until there is a new pelt rug for every room in my palace. Shahzaman groaned and rolled his shoulder away from his brother and held his silk blanket tight to him, snoring again in a matter of seconds. Shariar scoffed and stormed out of the room, making for his hunting party in a huff. The mid-morning sun found the window of Shahzaman's room and slid across his eyes, waking him. He yawned and stretched, waddling over to the window and scratching himself. He held the curtain to pull it closed, eager to sleep this day away, when he saw something in the garden. There, in a small enclave in the garden surrounded by bushes but visible from above, there was one of the musicians who had sung his praises the day before. He was on his back in the grass, and across his hips strode the wife of Shariar, naked in the morning sun, her copper skin glimmering with sweat as she made love to the young man. At the sight of this, Shazaman choked, then stepped backwards away from the window, then burst into a fit of laughter throwing his hands over his mouth and cackling into his palms. The servants of the castle noted to Shariar's vizier that Shazaman was a new man. He was laughing, parading around the gardens, light as a feather. The vizier approached the king in the garden with cautious optimism. Great Highness, King of Samarkand, it gladdens me to see you are in better spirits. Shazaman only smiled at the vizier and kissed him on the cheek then pranced off down the path to play chess with the wise men of court and hear poetry and music, especially music. As the sun found the western lands, the king of the Sassanids arrived at the gates to his palace. There was a congregation of attendants waiting for him, led by his trusted vizier. Great king, said the vizier, bowing deeply. It will please you to know that the king of Samarkand is in the highest spirits. Shariar, a cautious and diligent man, nodded but stroked his beard in thought as he dismounted and called for his brother. The brothers met in the very spot where Shazaman had witnessed the queen and her musician. Shariar spoke first. Brother, my vizier tells me you're in good spirits again. When I left you here this morning, I must admit I was consternated. You were so miserable, so despondent, so quiet. Yes, brother, I was. When I killed my wife and that cook... I did so in misery. Righteous misery, to be sure, but misery nonetheless. Misery is a lonely thing, you know. It surrounds and isolates you, makes you tired and fraught, makes meals taste like earth, and music sound like rain. Do you know what the cure for misery is, great king? Shariar crossed his arms over his chest and glared at his brother, wondering if he had finally just gone mad. He thought immediately of what to do with Samarkand a jewel of trade with a road leading straight to far-off Alcyon. Company, great king. Misery loves company.
Shazaman lifted his hand and gestured to the window looming above them. He explained everything in the precise words he had practiced the entire day, muttering to himself under his breath, practicing each sentence, choosing each word. When he was done, Shariar, the king of kings, the ruler of the great Sassanid Empire, the ruler of Persia, was on his knees, pulling clumps of grass up with his clenched fists. Shazaman left his brother there in the garden. He collected his things, the gifts he had accrued during his stay, his servants and slaves, and in the serenity of night, he left for Samarkand humming a pleasant tune that the musician had played for him just a few nights before. Shariar was found by his vizier the next morning, still on the ground with his fists clenched over the grass. Great king, said the vizier. The sun rises. You've been out here all night. Are you ill? Shariar looked up at his vizier and said, Get me the royal scimitar. Get me the sword of my father. The vizier did just that. The king took the blade and walked calmly through the garden. The vizier followed closely, not daring to speak. They made their way through the garden, through the courtyard and the games rooms, to the music room, where the poets and singers and instrumentalists slept late so that they could play for their master long into the night. Shariar approached one of these musicians, a handsome lad with a beautiful singing voice, whose long slender fingers plucked the sitar most beautifully. Shariar loosed his father's sword from its scabbard and handed the scabbard to the vizier, and told the musician to hold out his hands. Quivering, the musician looked at the vizier, who nodded at him with wide eyes, unsure of what was going on, but knowing that to disobey the king was a far more grave mistake than to obey him, even if harm come to you. The musician did as he was told, trembling, and Shariar reached out and gently placed his fingers on the boy's clenched fists, easing them loose and straightening out his fingers with a warm smile, his eyes never leaving the boy's shaking gaze. All the other musicians had woken now, all of them knew who this boy was and what was about to happen, but if the boy knew, he could not fathom it for the sensation of urine dribbling down his thigh. The king of the Sassanids stood straight and broke his gaze with the boy, only to twirl the scimitar in his hands and lop the boy's fingers clean off with a swift chop. The boy screamed from the bottom of his belly, so loudly that the vizier was more shocked by the sound than the violence. Shariar smiled warmly and placed the edge of the blade on the boy's shoulder, then slid it in a tight crescent over the boy's throat, spilling his blood all down his chest and ending that wretched noise. The king of kings turned calmly to his vizier before all and wiped the blood from his sword with a silk drape hanging from the roof, billowing pleasantly in the morning breeze that came in through the window with birdsong. Do not hide that blade until it has tasted the blood of my dear wife. Now go. And do what I ask. And the vizier did just that. All of Persia had soon heard the story of Shariar's wrath. Nothing travels faster and with more pleasure than a tale of sex, betrayal, and cruel bloodshed. It was told that the king was not satisfied with this horrendous affront to decency, that each night he would take a new wife, and in the morning command his vizier to take the blade of the king father and behead that wife. It was said that he had already run through all the ladies of court, all the wives of his soldiers, and was now poaching peasant girls from their beds to wed, defile, and have murdered by that craven vizier of his. No daughter of Persia was safe, from the king's lust or the vizier's blade. With each night came a child stolen away by the royal guard, 
and with each morning came a mother weeping over the demand of courts to claim the body. The people hated Shariar. They plotted to kill him, and begged God to give them a deliverer. When all the peasant girls of the royal city were spent, the vizier sat in his home in the palace grounds with his head in his hands, haunted by the eyes of a thousand pleading women. The vizier took no pleasure in these deeds. He had resigned himself to divine punishment for his part in the King of Kings' madness. As he slumped over the dining table and quietly wept, he felt the hands of his daughter find his shoulders. He rubbed his tear-soaked cheeks against the thumb of Dunyazad, his youngest, and his eldest, Shahrazad, spoke softly in his ear. Father, you have sacrificed so much, and now you sacrifice your soul to Shariar's madness? Why? For you, wept the vizier, for my daughters to be learned women, to know poetry, science, and the histories of the world. My soul's damnation is a pittance to pay for the living memories of my beloved. Shahrazad, a clever girl who had read voraciously and could recite the poetry, science, and histories from memory, fell to her knees and squeezed her father's hands in her own. Father, you have sacrificed so much, and now I must ask you to sacrifice one last thing. Anything, my love. Name anything you want at any cost, and I shall grant it to you. Do you swear, father? I swear, daughter. I wish to marry Shariar, king of the Sassanids, king of Persia, king of kings. I wish to marry him tonight. The vizier was struck dumb. He froze and whispered, No, my beloved, why? Why would you want this thing? I will end this madness, father. I will save the women of Persia from it. All I need is to be his bride. The vizier argued with her into the night, and bit by bit he was beaten down by her sharp tongue and clever mind until he acquiesced. And as the sun dipped below the western wall of the palace, the vizier solemnly walked out into the grand court to present his daughter to the king. The king was stunned. Vizier, said the king, you must know that I will not spare your daughter. You must know my misery is not satisfied and will not be satisfied even by Shahrazad. And you must know what I will ask you to do in the morning. Yes, my king, said the vizier. My daughter Shahrazad is young and beautiful. She is more than fit to be the bride of a king, even one so great as yourself. And so she asked to be wed to you, even knowing her fate, great king. I can deny her nothing, for she is my heart. Shariar's heart panged at this, but he hardened and accepted the offer of marriage to Shahrazad. That night, the king took Shahrazad into his bedchamber and made love to her. Shahrazad had told Dunyazad to sneak into the bedchamber and wait under the bed for the sound she would hear to stop, then produce herself and ask for a story as she did of her sister every night at home. Dunyazad covered her ears and watched the bottom of the bed bulge and recede for a few minutes, then be still. She rolled out from under the bed and said, Sister, sister, can you tell me a story? Tell me a story, O oh sister, one last story before the morning comes. The king was startled, but Shahrazad calmed him with a touch on the cheek and smiled. Great king, my sister has waited here because she knew this would be our last night together. Every night, since she was born, I have told her a story. Would the great king be so kind as to let me tell her one tonight, on our last night together before I am to be put to death by my father? The king stroked his beard in thought, then nodded. A story, surely. Shahrazad sat up, her eyes meeting the king's, and spoke. 
There once lived a porter of Baghdad, who made a pittance carrying the burdens of the rich as they shopped. He had no wives or daughters, no sons to carry on his name, but he was happy, for each day he would see the beautiful faces of women of high birth, and to behold these women contented him greatly. He knew he could never hope to do more than the work of a laborer for these women. That pleasure was for the gentlemen of high station, worthy of their beauty, or warrior princes with legacies and wealth to offer them. He was a simple porter with simple features and a strong, simple back. There was no room for delicacy and love in his life, though his soul was full to burst. One day our porter saw a woman of such beauty that her light dimmed all others. Her eyes were the color of rain cloud, her lips the shape of two rose petals curling in the heat of the day, her copper skin shimmered with rare oils, and her hair danced in the precious wind which cooled the porter's brow. He was astonished by her, and all the more astonished to notice she approached him, beckoning him with a twist of her nimble wrist and a flash of the jeweled rings on her fingers. Can you help me while I shop? she asked. Her voice was a symphony in a whisper, stirring the porter's soul. Yes, said the porter. Happy to, madam. They made their way through the market. The woman bought a feast fit for a king, and the porter supposed she must be a queen or princess, perhaps even a concubine preparing a feast for her lord. Who she was he could only guess. She pointed at dates and fresh fruit, meat and milk of goat, the finest cheese and succulent rices. She gathered flowers of every kind and bought the wine cellar out clean. Every drop passed to the porter to the sound of coins plummeting into coins, plummeting into palms. When the shopping was done, the buyer walked with the porter to the edge of the market and said, Would you be so kind as to bring these things to my manor? There I will pay you for your great service to me. The porter was all too happy to oblige. He carried the hoard down the twisting roads of Baghdad and up the stone steps of the buyer's courtyard and through the ornate gates of the buyer's palace to her front door. He bowed deeply, when from the archway to the main hall, two women emerged. One was broad of shoulder and stiff of chin. Her beauty was exciting and alive, but her eyes seemed somehow sad. The other was veiled from head to toe, a black niqab over her hair and face, and long, flowing black robes that trailed behind her, which made her seem ethereal. But her eyes were not like the strong woman's. Her eyes were beautiful and sharp like the edge of a sword. They stabbed his soul and drew him in. This, said the buyer, gesturing to the woman with broad shoulders, is the owner of the manor. This estate is hers, and her word here is law, as if she were the sultan herself. And this, said the buyer, gesturing to the woman in the veil, is the keeper of the manor. She will direct you to the kitchen and ensure the night goes well. The porter was enchanted by all three of these women. His eyes darted between them, and he bowed as deeply as he could with the burden from the market still on his back. Follow the keeper to the kitchen, sweet man, and then come see me. The porter did as he was told, and set the wines, food, and flowers down on the great wooden slab in the center of the kitchen. He pressed his palms together and touched his fingertips to his forehead, bowing deeply to the keeper, who giggled and placed her hand on his shoulder. He looked up to meet her eyes, and there was bewitched all over again. On his way back to the main hall, he crossed the owner. She was regal and strong, her black hair an ocean of glittering stars as she glided by him with a smirk, her eyes latching to him as they passed. He smiled back 
and felt moths going into a frenzy in his stomach. The porter stepped into the main hall, caring not for money, but for pleasure. He looked around the room with his hands behind his back, waiting for the buyer to appear with his pay. When she did, he thought he would refuse it and demand, no, beg, to be allowed to stay for the night. Just one night with these three beauties. He scratched the underside of his arm and ran his fingers through his greasy black hair, and very suddenly he could smell warm jasmine and sweet and savory sweat. He looked over his shoulder, and there was the buyer, her round face curled into a knowing smile. In her hands was a silk satchel tied shut and dangling from a red string. He turned and tried not to even notice the purse. He kept his eyes low and tried to maintain resolve as he approached and he smelled the rose water on her breath, spilling from her soft red lips. Your payment, said the buyer. Please, said the porter, keep your gold. But then how shall I pay you? The buyer said playfully, the curl of her lips deepening, exposing her white teeth. Let me stay with you three. I see no gentleman of the house, and yet you prepare a feast. I don't wish to be bold or cause offense, madam. I simply wish to continue to enjoy the company of you and your sisters. The buyer grinned so that her eyes disappeared behind her thick black eyelashes. She turned her back to him and walked back towards the hallway she had emerged from, sing-songing. If you wish, sweet man, but be warned. She spun around and lifted her arm to point above the entranceway to the manor where a plaque was hung, and in gold-leaf letters of the most beautiful calligraphy said, Speak of what concerns thee not, and burning ears shall be thy lot. The porter read this, then turned back to the buyer and said, What does it mean, mistress? It means, said the buyer, mind your own business, and do not ask questions about what you see here. The porter shrugged and nodded. That seems fair enough. The day passed and the porter wandered the halls of the manor gardens. He saw not servant or cook, but from the western wing, where he had left the market shopping, came the most intoxicating scents. He lit a fire beneath the garden bath in the western gardens as the sun began to set. He got undressed and dipped himself into the warm water, watching clouds of soot and sand idly drift through the water off his aching body. He dozed as the sun moved westward over him, casting strange shadows. First, the buyer came. She slid into the water in her silk finery and kissed him passionately. Second, the owner came. She disrobed before him and entered the water, slinking across his body, her hair floating on the surface as she passed her lips to his neck. Third, the keeper came. The mist of the water had made a fog, but he could barely make out her form as she slid across the murky water, and he was in ecstasy as he felt her fingers run across his skin. He woke up to the sound of the cricket. The moon's light was full and beating down on him. The water had gone cold as the fire was extinguished with the sun. He didn't know if he had dreamed his encounters with each woman, but he thought of how real it all felt. And yet... He dressed and went inside the manor, hearing simple notes of happy music. He followed it to the main hall, where the owner was plucking some happy sailor's song on a string instrument from a far-off land, and the keeper was setting a huge tray of fragrant food on a low table the buyer sat, smiling. The porter sat cross-legged at the table and said his grace. Just as he reached for a succulent-looking plate of lamb, there was a loud knock outside the gates. The keeper had returned to the gates with three figures cloaked in rags. Each lifted their tattered hoods. Each had no hair upon their head, 
and no beard to speak of. In fact, their entire faces, eyebrows and all, were shaven clean, and each was missing his right eye. The three men bent their heads and knees and kissed the ground before the owner, who stood and walked over to greet them. The buyer helped them to their feet and brought them to the round table where the porter was eating his fill. Each were made aware of the sign above the door, and each agreed before saying their grace. We are three dervishes. We met only tonight. We were out in the streets at night with nowhere to go and found each other. We smelled food and heard music, and our bellies were empty, our souls heavy. So together we approached this manor and begged for a morsel of food to share. The veiled woman was so kind as to let us in and join you, but warned us not to ask any questions. Yes, said the porter, tearing bread with his teeth. I am a porter in the market, but these fine women were so kind as to invite me to their feast, he lied. I, too, was warned not to ask questions. It's strange, he declared, chewing his food loudly, that you are all strangers to each other, yet look so alike, all dervishes, all in rags, and all missing the same eye. Very curious. The porter noticed the men looked consternated, looking down at their hands and clearing their throats. But, said the porter cheerfully, as the plaque says, let that which concerns me not, not be spoken, and took another bite of bread. As the men chattered, the owner returned to her music-making, the buyer whirled around the room in dance, and the keeper sang as her hands glided over the shoulders of the four men, refilling their wine cups and laughing at their jokes. Then, all at once, and quite abruptly, the three women stopped, as if some inaudible bell had been rung. The owner stopped playing, the buyer stopped dancing, and the keeper stopped singing. They each stepped into the center of the room as the men put down their cups and watched in fascination and confusion. The buyer gestured once more to the plaque above the entrance hall and said, I must remind you not to ask any questions about what it is you see here tonight. The men, each pious and honest, agreed, lifting their open palm to the sky, then placing it on their chest, swearing a vow to God. With this, the buyer left the room, and there was a great, unspeakable tension in the room emanating from the keeper and the owner. They stood motionless, their eyes closed as if in prayer. The men watched in fascination as the buyer reappeared, with two hounds of pitch-colored fur, each with the same sad eyes of the owner. They led the buyer with a golden chain tied around each of their necks, and when the buyer was next to the two other women, she lifted the chains from around the dog's necks and gathered them, then somberly handed them to the owner. The buyer turned to the keeper, kneeling at her feet, and collected the train of black silk at her feet. She lifted it letting it roll into her arms as she rose to her feet. The keeper's body was exposed, but the men were too fascinated to look away. Her naked copper skin from ankle to neck glimmered in the lamplight of the evening. Her face was stunning, round and bright like the moon, with eyes that shone like stars. But every inch of her body, from her long, thin neck to her supple thighs to her slender ankles, was ravaged in scars, welts, and lacerations. She seemed in a trance as the niqab was lifted and her hair fluttered down around her shoulders. The porter was the first to notice the tears welling in her eyes, making them shimmer all the more. She wept in the same beautiful voice that she laughed in moments ago, curling herself into a ball at her feet and pressing her fingers into the marred flesh of her body. As this went on, the owner turned to the dogs and whimpered, letting the chains in her hand tumble out of her palm, 
but squeezing a bundle of links before it could tumble to the floor. The dogs watched the dangling chain with trembling fear, and as the owner whipped the dogs with the chains, they cried and whined, but did not flee. Their bodies became matted with blood. Their whines became intolerable to the men, who pressed their palms to their ears, but daren't look away. For many minutes this went on, the keeper weeping nude on the floor, the dogs being beaten to within an inch of their lives. And then when it finally stopped, the buyer brought the keeper her clothes, and the owner dropped the chains like a curse, and collapsed among the two black dogs, shivering on the floor. The owner wept in heaving sobs, apologizing and begging for forgiveness, as the keeper, with the help of the buyer, got dressed. The buyer affixed the chains to the dogs, and carried them under her arms out of the room as the owner regained her composure, and washed the blood from her hands in a bowl of water and flowers, humming the sailor's tune to herself. The keeper by now was already dressed again, and as if nothing had happened, she went to the kitchen to fetch a fresh jug of wine. The night went on when the buyer returned. The owner played her music, the keeper sang along, and the buyer danced most gracefully, but the four men were stunned into silence. They had stared at each other, dumbfounded, for almost an hour before the whispers began. What in the name of God was that? Are these women witches? Have we fallen into some jinn's trap? We must know the answer. We must confront them. This is madness. The whispering kept up. Hands flew across chests, fingers pointed, curses were uttered. Then you will do it without me, said the porter. My word is all I have. The dervishes agreed to approach the women together, waving off the porter for his pedestrian piety, and egregious in curiosity. The three dervishes stood up and glanced at each other, before stepping into the center of the room. They gathered their tattered clothes about each other and stood tall. Great hosts, said the first dervish. We are honored as your guests and grateful for your hospitality, said the second dervish. However, said the third dervish, there was a pregnant silence before all three spoke at once. We must know what's going on here. At this, the music, the dancing, and the singing stopped. The three women's faces turned dark. The air turned cold. The porter shrank down at the table and said a whispered prayer as a thundering clamor washed over the corridors adjoining the dining hall. The dervishes clutched their tatters and looked at each other frightened when from the darkness there emerged no less than forty men in white turbans brandishing glimmering scimitars. Each at once lifted their blades, then brought them to point, trained on the dervishes. You have broken your vows, each, said the buyer from behind the wall of guards. You are liars, deceivers, and most heinously you are curious, said the owner. There is only one thing for the lot of you. Death, said the keeper. No, no, interrupted the porter. Please, please, there must be some other penance these men can suffer. There's no need for bloodshed. I would be so saddened to see the death of these three men on such a lovely night. Let them serve some other punishment. Let them pay for their transgressions some other way. I, I beg you. The buyer, who liked the porter a great deal, softened somewhat, and turned to the keeper and the owner. They whispered among themselves, the buyer pleading, pressing her hands to her chest and hissing until finally the owner stepped forward and waved her hands. With this simple gesture, the forty guards lowered their blades and marched back down the corridors from whence they had came. We have agreed on a bargain, so as not to ruin this night with bloodshed. Anything, said the dervishes all at once. 
you will tell us your tales, each in turn, and when we have heard them, if we deem you honest, you may go. The three dervishes stuttered and touched their chins to the astonishment of the porter. The alternative is death, gentlemen. Death! Keep your one-eyed heads. Tell these women your stories. How can they be so scandalous as to be secrets worth your lives? There was some hissing and whispering among the dervishes, but in the end they saw the porter's point and accepted these terms. The first dervish stepped forward. I was born a prince of a small but wealthy nation south of the Nile. I was a rambunctious child of foul manner, always getting into trouble and using the name of my father to avoid punishment. On the day of my ascent into manhood, I was to perform a display of military prowess. Of course, I knew nothing of battle. I skipped every training session with that grumpy old commander that I possibly could. He had guarded me diligently since I was a baby, and I hated him because every time I would piss off the battery onto some guards or set fire to some silk drape in the concubine's quarters or force some eunuch to eat a bug, there he would be, staring at me with those stern black eyes. He was the only person in the whole kingdom who would look me in the eyes like that. Even my father and mother wouldn't look at me. My brothers, all older, stronger men, had gone off to conquer Ethiopia or some other fool's errand. My parents thought that by giving me an old and trusted commander as a bodyguard, it might instill some discipline in me. It only instilled resentment for him, and for them. On the day of my coming of age, my commander insisted that I, for my part in the ceremony, put on a display of archery. I had used bows and slings to kill small animals, made arrows from slender branches and fine feathers plucked from the hornbills my mother kept in her menagerie. This was not the reason archery was chosen. My commander made it abundantly clear that the reason he chose archery for me was because he did not want me to be embarrassed in a duel of spears, swords, or axes. He did not believe I could even lift a sword, let alone use one without wounding myself. I didn't care. I just wanted the ceremony to be over with. I had discovered just that week that I enjoyed looking at women. I enjoyed their scent the sound of their voices, the way their eyes made me feel when they darted away from my gaze. I had determined to make a woman love me. Now that was a test of a man, not these silly games with bows and arrows. The commander set me to practice archery, and of course, I didn't. I spent my days in the fields with my bow slung over my shoulder, chatting up peasant women who would grovel and cry and avoid me. I would take their hand, only to have it wrenched away, and when this angered me, their fathers would plead for their lives, and the whole mood would just be ruined, so I'd leave and try again somewhere else until my mood was so foul I just went home. 
The day came, and I had not drawn a single arrow from its quiver as I stepped out into the field with a crowd of aristocrats, military men, and politicians there to watch me. I took my place and scanned the crowd. Not a pretty face in sight. I sighed and readied myself to shoot the target, which stood twenty paces from me, a leopard skin, the symbol of my family's rule. I readied my bow as the crowd became silent and watched. As I pulled the knocked arrow back, I heard a most peculiar thing, my house. It was a song, a song sung by a voice of a woman. It was sweet and low and warm like a summer night. It filled my heart so completely and so immediately that I jerked my body to the left to see who in the crowd could be humming so serenely. The arrow came loose and fired, and the humming stopped, replaced by an agonized scream. I had struck my commander with an arrow. It had lodged itself in his eye, and he was writhing on the ground in a pool of his own blood. Had the arrow been anything but a ceremonial trinket, it surely would have killed him. My ladies, of all the shameful things that I have told you so far today, this next part is the most shameful. I ran. I ran away from the courtyard, from the crowd, from the commander. I dropped my bow and sprinted to the first horse I saw, and I fled as far as the horse could take me, to the countryside. My horse fell with the sun, and I continued on foot until I came to a cemetery. It was bordered by red clay parapets, and in the center was a mausoleum. I made for that mausoleum, and hid. I cannot explain to you why I ran so far, or indeed why I ran at all. That moment felt like a breaking point in my mind, as if this one final, irresponsible, childish, harmful act would be the reaping of all the justice I had skirted my entire life up to that point. I fell into a deep sleep inside the mausoleum, and when I awoke, with the twilight of dawn before my eyes had opened, I could hear it again, that singing, that beautiful humming. I heard the mausoleum door groan and hid quickly in the shadows. I watched in silence as a voice crept in and filled the room, echoing off the stone walls. A woman of staggering beauty stepped in with the morning breeze. My ladies, when I tell you she was the most beautiful thing I had ever beheld, know that I mean no disrespect to any of you, but her beauty rivaled the great temples of India. It rivaled the lost wonders of Egypt. Her face was my sun and my moon. When I beheld it, the universe made sense to me, and my heart was at peace. I began to hum the tune with her, and to my surprise, she did not seem shocked that I was there. In point of fact, she seemed to be expecting me. I emerged from the shadows and met her eyes. They were as oceans, endless and full of wonder. She smiled as she hummed and my head swam. I told her that she is beautiful and that I love her. And do you know what she said? The most fantastic, ridiculous thing. Utterly mad. She said that she loved me too. I didn't question it, my host. I took that woman's hand and knew right then that I would do or kill anything to ensure I never had to let it go. I did not question her expecting me. I did not question why I had heard the tune in the courtyard, or how she found me. I did not even question why when she moved the lid of the tomb in the center of the mausoleum, there was instead of a corpse, a stairway. I followed her into the tomb, down the staircase, past the lit braziers, past the world to a simple bed, at the end of this tunnel. I apologize for what I'm about to say in light of this company, but you asked for the truth, and this is it. She turned to me, and it was just then that I realized she was not wearing a stitch of clothing. Her hair flowed down her body in great sheets like drapes, and when she placed her delicate fingers on the edges of her hair and pulled it back, 
I began immediately to undress myself. My ladies, the love we made felt like melting. Her skin was hot to the touch. She smelled smoky and pleasant like an eastern temple. She tasted of rare herbs, and she never sweat. I do not know how long I was down there, my ladies. I do not know what was real and what was a dream. Perhaps there was no woman. Perhaps I simply slept on the mausoleum floor for all that time. I listened to her hum that tune. We made love, we slept, we sang, and nothing else. Until we no longer did. I remember clearly that I had fallen asleep, and when I woke, instead of her warm embrace, I felt cold. It was dark, the braziers were out, and my hands, face, and chest felt dirty. I felt ash on my body, all over, that smelled something like her. The music had stopped, replaced by nothing. I could hear only my own panicked thoughts and the sound of my breathing. I made my way along the floor until I found my clothes. I stumbled into them and kept walking. Every joint ached. My head was still swimming, my mouth tasting of ash. When I emerged from the tomb, it was day again. I stepped out of the mausoleum, and there was a young man kneeling in a grave. At first he paid me no mind, but when he saw the state I was in, he said, Are you all right, uncle? Uncle, he said. I was confused. He was older than I was, a man of at least twenty. I shrugged him off and stumbled out of the cemetery where he followed me. He was insistent that I needed help, and eventually I was so exhausted that I accepted. I got onto his horse, and he led me to his village. Best not to be out at this time of war, he said. War? What war? Why, he said, a civil war. The struggle for the throne. I was even more confused. Had I stumbled into some other kingdom? What struggle for the throne? He explained it to me very carefully. The king and the queen had been murdered by rebels. Their bodies were dragged through the market. When their sons came to avenge them, they were struck down by a storm of arrows. I shouted at this young man who was trying to help me, insisted he explain how that could have happened all in one night. He stopped and let the bridle of his horse go to correct me. The royal family has been dead for years, uncle. I reared the horse and bolted without a word. Either this man was mad, or I had succumbed to some spell. Either way, I was not interested in finding out. I sped across the plains until I came to the gates of the royal city. The gates were barricaded and surrounded by soldiers. But I knew a secret way that only the children of the royals knew. I got off my horse and crept around to a small drain pipe, long unused. I could squeeze into it, but only just. This was odd because just last week I had easily slid through it on my way to the guard's outpost, where I demanded a guard do a headstand until he vomited on his own face. I got through the drain pipe and snuck into the palace. There were guards everywhere in uniforms I did not recognize, so I avoided them and used my knowledge of the palace's layout to get to the courtyard, where this whole affair began. You there! What are you doing here? The voice was harsher and older, but I knew it well. I turned and saw the commander, at least twenty years older than the last time I had seen him, his right eye long-heeled shut with a grotesque scar. He was wearing my father's seal of office, the leopard skin, but it was defiled, caked in blood and torn to tatters. What could I say to this man? What could have saved me? What words could even explain? We stared at each other for a moment, frozen, me in fear and him in shock. If I was not certain he recognized me, I soon would be. He approached me without another word. He grabbed me by my neck 
and dragged me to the end of the courtyard. Then he ripped the bloody leopard skin from his shoulder and threw it over my head. I could see through one of the tears with my left eye. He stepped twenty paces away exactly and turned. Guard! he screamed. One approached, and he held out his hand. The guard looked at his empty hand and stuttered until the commander said, Your bow, son. The commander knocked an arrow and pulled it back, aiming for me. As he loosed the arrow, I swear to you, my host, I heard the woman's song again, sweet and enchanting and calming. My heart was full, and this time, instead of moving, I was frozen still. The arrow pierced the leopard's skin and my right eye, but I did not make a sound. The guard lifted me up by my shoulders, and the commander tore the leopard skin and the arrow, and my eye, away. To the dungeon, my king, said the guard. No. Free him, said the commander. I was set loose outside the city walls. An order was shouted not to harm me, but not to offer me any assistance either. I stumbled northward like this, eating what I could find, losing my hair and relying on the mercy of strangers toward an old cripple. And that is how you find me today, my host. I wandered into Baghdad just this night. I met these men just this night. And here I stand once again at the mercy of beautiful women. The second dervish stepped forward. I was born a prince of the Gujarat, but I abdicated my crown for the allure of the sea. I was an explorer, a captain of a mighty vessel. We were a crew of twenty-five men seeking oddities and miracles from across the world, making port in far-off lands all the way to Yindu and back. We fought great serpents, escaped treacherous islands crawling with gin, we stole the treasure of mad kings and lost it all on women, drink, and gambling. One day, while at port, I awoke in an inn, surrounded by naked bodies, with only the faintest recollection of my previous evening. I made my way down to the common area, and heard the greedy whisper of an old man speaking to a sailor. It seemed that the king of an Andaman island had heard the story of a great black mountain, and at the top of this mountain there lived a black horse of rare beauty, and rarer still, this horse had the wings of a bird sprouting from its back. The king of Jodhpur had placed a bounty on this horse. To the man who sailed to this mountain, which breached the southern sea, he would pay a golden treasure and the hand of his most beautiful daughter. I got dressed quickly and stalked the old man through the streets until I caught him by the collar and shook him. There must be some trick to this story of yours, old man. Otherwise, you'd have kept it to yourself. Tell me what you're not telling anyone else. The old man, frightened out of his wits, told me. Ships cannot approach, not simply because of the raging storms that surround the island, but the force of this mystery, which tears the metal from the ships and leaves their wrecked crew to drown in the great waves that crash against the mountain regardless of wind or tide. It is easy, my host, to look back on this moment and imagine a version of this story in which I heed the warnings I shook out of this poor old man, to wonder what my life would be had I listened. But you see, when you have money and loyalty, and have evaded death as many times as I have, you begin to imagine that you're blessed with a destiny, a divinely acquired proclivity for survival. By his blessed name, 
had I only known how right I was. We made for the island. It was on no map, but we knew it was in the South Sea, and we knew it was covered in storm. So for weeks, we followed storm clouds, lightning strikes, anything on the horizon that could be the mountain's eternal maelstrom. As you can guess, we reached this mountain. As you can guess, we passed through the storm cloud, and as you can guess, our ship was torn apart. At first, we noticed the iron fixtures rattling, but as the black mountain spread across the horizon and engulfed us in its shadow, earrings began ripping themselves from the ears of my men. Nails came loose from the groaning wood, and all at once, our entire complement of cannons and ammunition came stampeding through the lower decks, tearing the ship to pieces from the inside and killing most of my men. The ones who weren't impaled or shot by the mountain's power were pulled beneath the waves. I alone survived, washed ashore, disarmed and beaten by wood and water and anguish. I knelt before Mecca. I prayed to God to guide my crew to paradise. And then I picked myself up and began limping up the mountain. The stones of this place were black as pitch and glimmered like precious jewels. I made my way up the mountain's face, cooled by the winds of the storm that had killed my crew. As I climbed steep black cliffsides and ate strange fruits which grew from small trees everywhere, eaten by white goats I could not hunt for their nimbleness, masters of this jagged kingdom of cliffsides. There was no other animal in this place, only the goats who ate the fruit and from whose dung sprang more trees who made more fruit. After three days I had made my way to the top of the mountain. The sun, which I had not seen in some time, stung my eyes. There was no ice at this summit, no snow. Instead, nestled within the jagged, glimmering rocks that shot up over the storm clouds, was a courtyard covered by a huge brass dome. I sheltered myself from the constant rain under this dome and listened to the pitter-patter of the storm make music against it. I laid on the cool, flat floor and let sleep take my aching body, for I had not rested since the day I arrived. I do not remember my dream except that it was strange and blemished my soul. I woke up in a start, and before me was a small fire in a simple brazier. In my waking haze, I didn't question it. I was cold, and it was warm. That was all that mattered. I huddled myself close to it and watched the fire dance, trying to recall that dream. As the sun began to set over the tallest stones, I saw a procession of men in hoods approaching from a narrow walkway on the other side of the dome. They stepped in practice unison into a circle around myself and the brazier, which is when I noticed that each carried a salver, which they set on the ground before them as they went on their knees. Then, all at once, they bent their faces into their salvers as if in prayer, and rose, flinging their hoods off to reveal horribly scarred faces caked in blue soot. They began heaving more of this soot from their dishes to their faces, as if washing with it, wailing as if begging for forgiveness. I was stunned. At first I believed these men to be the spirits of my fallen crew, but when I realized I did not recognize any of them, I wondered if they were jinn. I wondered if I had ascended into their realm, but when they stopped, one of them, an older man with a slash across his face that took his right eye, looked at me and smiled. He introduced himself and welcomed me to the island. I blinked out of my stupor and thanked him and God that I survived. He explained that all of them had come to this place just the way I had. As he explained this, the others went about tidying the mess they'd made in their strange ritual. 
They fed me and guided me to their home, a humble but cozy manor nestled among the trees. They could make a thousand dishes from the strange fruit I had been subsisting on and the meat of the goats who strayed into the traps they set on the perimeters of their home. They explained that though they could not leave, they had found contentedness here. They were kind to me, and forbade me nothing except an explanation of the blue soot ritual, or the origin of their scars. This, of course, maddened me. I watched it happen every day as the sun set. They would light the brazier, gather the blue soot into their salvers by pounding the rock of the mountain into dust, dip their faces into it as if in prayer, then moan and wail into the sky as they slathered themselves with it. I watched them do this for a hundred days, my hosts. A hundred days of this madness without explanation. I searched the manor for books or scrolls which could explain it. I proffered theories to any who would stop and listen, but there were no written words in this place, and each man said the same thing when I asked. To know our fate is to doom yourself to it, brave sailor. Simply find peace here, and don't ask. This was insufficient, my ladies. It wouldn't do. I was going mad, fixating on this question at all moments, dreaming of its answer in fitful sleep. I stared into the scarred faces of each man, their empty smiles and distant, mournful eyes. I couldn't take it anymore, my lady. I had to know. Eventually, I grabbed that old man and threatened his life. I wrangled him with all my strength, dragged him to a cliff face, and dangled him over the edge until they agreed by God that they would show me what I desired to know. There was no anger in them when I spared the old man, no spite or wrath, only sadness in their eyes as they gathered the corpse of one of the goats and began to meticulously remove its organs and bones. After a day of this, they beckoned me to this husk and told me to climb into it and curl myself into a ball. I did so, and they sewed me into the goat's skin and closed me inside, and took me to the tallest cliff face. I swore to them, that if they threw me off the edge, I would haunt them as spirits and drag them into the sea with me. But they were silent, offering neither threat nor reassurance, as they set me on the edge of this cliff and left. As the warmth of the sun began to fade from the goatskin, I heard a sound like an angry wind surround me, and all at once I was lifted by a great bird into the air. I could see it through the seams, a raptor of such great size that its wings blotted out the sun. After a short time, it came to rest in an enormous nest, the size of the manor I tell you this tale in. It flew off after it dropped me, and I quickly freed myself and snuck away into the jungles of this new island. Soon, my lady, I was met with a clearing in this jungle, and in the center of this clearing was a palace of such grandeur I would only diminish it by attempting to describe it to you. It seemed to go on forever, and somehow, the inside seemed even bigger than the outside. I walked into the opulent main hall of this place, and once again, confronted by a lit brazier, and once again, joined by hooded figures. But this time, there were no scarred faces beneath these hoods. No, my ladies, when these figures revealed themselves, they were beautiful. Ravishing eyes and supple lips which curled into cloying smiles. Women of such rare beauty that it stirred my soul, and I wept with happiness to behold them after such time on that black mountain seeing only those scarred blue men. They took me by the hands to the end of the main hall, and there were forty rooms, each with a gilded door, all except for one. Behind each gilded door was a wonder, behind one, sloping hills of vast treasure, behind another, golden fields of fragrant flowers, 
and so in each of these rooms I made passionate love to each woman. I ate and drank my fill, my every appetite sated, my every pleasure given gladly. But, my lady, but, my host, but, my companions, there was one door not like the other doors. It was not gilded, but made of simple wood painted blood red. The women told me that I could have anything, any of them, but I could not enter this door. When I tried to approach it, tried to overpower them, they would speak dark words I did not understand, and I would be drawn back from the door by this power. I believe you can guess what happened next, my house. I began to fixate on that door. Food tastes like sand, drink like lamp oil, sex brought me no pleasure, treasure had no hold on me, and flowers smelled of rot, because my mind could think only of the red door. One evening, I was so depressed that in a drunken stupor I cursed the women with all of my heart, these sorceresses who denied me. I spat at them and threatened their lives until I blacked out. When I woke up, I was back in the main hall, curled once again before a lit brazier, but critically, I was alone. I sprang to my feet and ran towards the door. I looked around for one of the women, but saw no one. Each golden door of pleasure shut tight, each woman sleeping behind one. I grabbed the black rope latch on the red door and pulled. It caught fast at first, but I would not be denied. I put all my weight against the rope, and all at once, it loosed, and I was thrown onto my back as it flung open. When I lifted myself off my back, I peered into the dark room beyond the red door. I couldn't see further than the doorway. All was blackness, but as soon as I got to my feet, there emerged a figure, tall and dark with glimmering eyes. I froze as it emerged, a black horse bigger than any other horse I had ever seen. It came close, and when I felt its hot breath on my nose, I dared to lift my hand and run my fingers through its obsidian mane. I caressed it and guided it out of the room, towards the entrance of the palace. It followed me obediently, and we came into the morning sun in the clearing. From its back sprouted immense black wings, wider even than the bird that had brought me to this island. I choked on the tears that ran down my face. I was free, my ladies, free to fly off this island and go back home, and what's more, I had the king's bounty. I would be rich and marry his finest daughter. This whole affair had ruined me, driven me mad, but it had all been worth it to secure this last treasure. I mounted the horse and began to sprint ahead. It folded its wings around my legs and stamped through the dense jungle towards the nest of the great bird. When it found that cliff face, it trampled through the nest and sprang into the air, and there its great wings flung wide and we were aloft. I cried out in triumph as we made our way across the sea. Soon, though, I saw it, just ahead of us, the black mountain surrounded by storm cloud. We approached as fast as lightning, and I begged for the horse to change course northward, but it would not change course. I screamed and prayed, tugging at its mane, until my temper once more got the better of me, and I kicked it in the ribs with all my might. The horse bucked, catching the wind with its wings like a sail to rear back. I was flung from its back, and as I tumbled, it kicked me in the head with its mighty hoof, and I fell into the sea. I awoke to your house in the same spot where I had washed ashore at the beginning of my tale, at the base of the Black Mountain. There, the men were waiting for me with somber expressions, as I came to. I got to my feet, and tasted the blood in my mouth. I had lost my right eye to the horse's wrath. The old man whose life I had threatened approached and told me the truth of his order. 
Each of these men had been shipwrecked on this mountain. Each had been carried by the rook to the other island. Each had availed themselves of its pleasures, and each had ridden the horse, only to be subject to its wrath and cast back to this mountain when they realized where it was going. I begged them to let me join their number, to let me cover my face in the dust of the Black Mountain and beg God for forgiveness. They denied me. They built a raft from the wood of the fruit trees, made a sail from the skin of the goats, and loaded it with enough fruit to survive the trip north. They put me in it and told me that for the violence I brought on them, I would be condemned to wander forever, a one-eyed dervish. That is my tale. That is what brings me here tonight. I wandered into Baghdad just this night. I met these men just this night. And here I stand, once again lost in a strange place. dervish stepped forward to tell his tale. I was a scholarly prince of Gorio. I traveled the whole world collecting books, histories, anything of learning. I speak thirteen tongues and my calligraphy is renowned from the courts of Alcyon to the libraries of Egypt. My caravan was a procession of learned men, scholars, mystics, and fellow travelers. Thinking back now, I wish I had had a few more warriors in our party. For one day, while traveling the Indian countryside, we were beset by men on horseback who, without so much as a word, began firing arrows into our number and grabbing anything they could. It was true that we were well furnished, but as it has always been with men of learning, there was barely a sack of gold to speak of between our entire party. All the money we made from casting spells and translating documents was spent on books and wine. I snuck away from the rabble. A cowardly act, I admit, but what else could I be expected to do? I had never so much as lifted a sword in my entire life. I threw my robes off, abandoned my books and my fellows, and ran into the jungle. I made my way as deep into the wilderness as I could, but still I could hear hoofbeat and jeer behind me. I ran until I tripped quite by chance over what I thought was a stone, but when I lifted my head out of the mud, I saw behind me a golden latch attached to a small door. Well... What else could I be expected to do? I lifted the latch and slid down into whatever waited for me. I huddled under this latch door for a time, listening to birdsong and wind, waiting for the hooves of the bandits to pass by. When nothing of the sort came, I grew worried and decided I'd better not emerge just in case these men were waiting in ambush. I turned and made my way through the tunnel. It was dark and cool to the touch, smooth like mud but firm like stone. I crept along until I saw a shaft of light, and followed it to the mouth of the tunnel's other side. My host's what comes next is most astonishing, but I promise you it is true. When I emerged from the tunnel, there before me was a palace, a whole palace made of crystals. It sat in the center of a vast cave, but seemed to emit its own light, as the sun does. I was, of course, astonished. Well, what else could I be expected to do? I made my way into the palace through the great doors to see if anyone was home. 
I found a dining hall, and on the table of this dining hall was a feast the like of which I had never and will never see again. I was always a man of appetite, and with all the trouble I had been through, well, what else could I be expected to do? I ate my fill. In all my voracious gluttony, I didn't see her. Yes, dear host, there was a woman in this palace. She stood at the end of the table with an apple in her hand, and when I noticed her, she seemed as shocked to see me as I her. I wiped my mouth on my sleeve and bowed deeply to her. Now, I may not look at now, dear ladies, but at the time, I was a very comely young man. The lady of this strange house took note of this and told me so. She approached me, and I noted, too, that she was comely. We spent days making love and feasting. Ah, such bliss. I grow emotional just remembering it. Well, after a few days of laying naked in her bedchamber, there was a crash at the palace doors. She had been sleeping soundly, but when she heard this bang, she shot to her feet and hissed at me to hide. What else could I be expected to do? I scrambled for a closet embossed in gold and rubies and made myself scarce. The young lady dressed quickly and stood at perfect attention as the bedchamber door swung open, and there, burning black billowing smoke from his nostrils, was a gin. I had never seen a gin before, but I knew better than to cross them. Oh, how could I have been such a fool? You know, I've always said that the mind must be stronger willed than the urges of the body. Here I was, stuffing myself with his food and making love to this woman of his. I shuddered to think what he would do if he found me. Where is he? asked the djinn. Where is who, my one and only? asked the woman. Do not mock me, woman. The one who wears this. My ladies, my heart sank when I saw from his immense furry claws my undergarments. I had thrown them off in the dining hall and left them there for days now. The lady kept her composure at this revelation, not even a twitch of the nose. I don't know what that is or who it belongs to, she said. No, said the djinn. Let's just see. The djinn whispered something into my undergarments, and as if I had always been in them, I apparated within the undergarments, dangling by the djinn's hand by the waist strap. Who are you? asked the djinn. I am a simple scholar, my master. I escaped a raid on my caravan and hid in the entrance of this place. I swear to you. The djinn ran a finger through his wispy red beard and curled his lip to expose the green fangs beneath. He looked at the woman with fiery eyes and said, You were making love to this man. You, my wife by contract, my property. This is a betrayal I cannot forgive. I will eat him, and then I will kill you. No, said the woman. I've never met this man in my life. He must have broken in. I only just arrived in the bedchamber. Perhaps he was hiding from me in here as well as you. The djinn looked at me suspiciously. Did you make love to my wife, Scala? Tell the truth and I'll set you free. That is my bargain. I stammered, but managed to tell him that I had never seen her before, and I repeated my story. The djinn was not convinced. He dropped me to the floor and threw with me a scimitar from his waist. Pick that up, said the djinn to his lady, and she did. Kill him. I was frozen in fear as she approached, never once breaking eye contact with the djinn. Why? she asked. He is a trespasser, no? A stranger to you. Kill him if you do not know him, otherwise admit what you've done. 
It would be a grave sin to kill a stranger, dear Jin. I am a good Muslim. The Jin thought for a moment, then turned to me. Are you a Muslim? I don't exactly know why I didn't say yes, but I didn't say yes. Good, said the Jin. Then kill her. I looked to her. She had not cracked. She was good. As I wondered how many other men had stumbled into this exact situation, the jinn picked up the sword and placed the handle to my stomach. Lauren, do it. If she is a stranger, she means nothing to you. Kill her, and I will set you free. I clashed the sword and tried not to tremble. I stepped forward and, my ladies, I am not proud to say this, but I held the edge of the blade to the lady's neck. What else could I be expected to do? She didn't flinch. I stared into her eyes, and she stared into mine. What else could I be expected to do? I reared my arm, held the sword aloft, then spun at the jinn and tried to take him down. What happened next is, well, confusing. I remember the young lady screaming, Don't! at me. I remember the jinn evaporating in a puff of smoke. I remember his maniacal cackling. Well, my hosts, there's no easy way to explain what happened next. I woke up on a sandy beach, and I was a monkey. Specifically, a grey langur. I had all of my wits about me, I was alive, but, well, I was a little monkey with a black face. As I contemplated my lot on the beach, staring out into the horizon with burdened dignity and definitely not screaming and crying until my little monkey throat was hoarse, I noticed a ship anchored just offshore and a little boat being loaded with supplies. And not just any ship, a ship from my home country. Ah, to go home again, my host. The thought filled me with hope. Sure, I was a monkey, but I could figure that out later. Right now, I needed to get on that boat. I snuck onto the boat, hid among the supplies, and made myself scarce. I subsisted on whatever provisions I could steal or bugs I could catch. That worked out for about three days before anyone noticed. I got too ambitious, you see. I crept into the captain of the ship's quarters and tried to steal a mango. Big mistake. The captain grabbed me by the tail as I made for the window and swung me around a few times before leaving me to dangle. He laughed, for he was a jovial, if cruel, man, and he placed me on his table next to his maps and books. So, this is who's been stealing rations. I should have guessed it was a stupid animal. No man on this vessel would be senseless enough to steal from me. It took me a few minutes to compose myself, but as soon as I wasn't dazed by the captain's assault, I noticed that every inch and every wall of this man's cabin was bursting with books. Oh, happy fortune! I made for the quill in the inkpot on his desk. He laughed and sat in his chair, thinking it some game. Imagine the look on his face when I began scribbling in great detail the story so far. He was flabbergasted, my ladies, stunned. But because this was a man of letters, a man of books, he read my tale and was moved by it. He confessed he knew no magicians or jinns to turn me back, but he would allow me to sail with him until a better life for a scholarly monkey came along. A few weeks later, we were in Baghdad. I had led a life of leisure in the captain's cabin. My identity, as far as the crew were concerned, was the captain's pet, but in secret. As pay for my food, travel, and boarding, I wrote him love poems, which he would use to woo the hearts of women at port. He grew a reputation for his way with words, and when we made port in Umm Qasr, he was met by a summons from the court of the Sultan of Baghdad himself. He brought me along, much to the confusion of his crew and the emissaries who he had to argue with to allow my presence 
in the court of his majesty. The sultan had read some of his poetry. It had been passed from a port girl who was in love to a customer who was a writer to an aristocrat who was a patron of the arts. To the sultan, who had a daughter. This daughter was so beautiful, so enchanting, that no man save the sultan could see her until she was married. He could deny her nothing, and the poems I had written so moved her that she begged to commission the writer for more. The captain heard the offer and said, Ah, great sultan, I must confess to you the truth, because to lie to one such as yourself would be the death of my soul. I did not write those poems. The sultan stroked his beard. No matter, good sailor, simply relinquish the one who did from your service, and I will pay you handsomely, and he will live the rest of his days in comfort, writing beautiful words for my daughter. The captain smiled and placed me at the sultan's feet. There is your poet, O great one. At first the sultan was furious. He believed he was being mocked. I swear to you, O king of the jewel of Iraq, that this animal is a scholar. He writes poetry, he transcribes documents, and he plays a mean game of chess. The sultan's ears pricked. Did you say chess? At once, a board and pieces were produced. I was placed onto a little stool with a red cushion and made to play black. I beat the king of Baghdad in seven moves. He giggled like a child and waved his hand at the sailor. At once, the sailor was presented with a chest of gold and jewels, and he winked at me as he left court for the open sea. I spent my days breaking the heart of the sultan, who could not beat me at his favorite game, but was compelled to keep trying to show his viziers his new toy. I spent my days breaking the heart of the sultan's daughter, who read the words of heart-rending beauty which I wrote for the woman in the crystal palace, who I missed terribly, and felt great guilt towards. The sultan dare not tell his daughter that a filthy little monkey with a black face wrote the words that filled her soul, but he was eager to show her his newest fascination, and so, one afternoon, he cleared the palace gardens of any men, and set up a game of chess for us to play, as she observed. I sat diligently on my stool, and a blue bow around my neck as the sultan produced the young lady. She was, as you can imagine, my host, absolutely radiant. Her eyes were like fire, her smile wizened and mysterious. When she noticed me, she froze. Father, she said, you have broken the vow you made to my mother. The sultan was understandably confused. There's no man here but me. My vow to your mother not to let a man lay eyes on you until you marry them is secure. Then why, said the girl, is there a man on that stool? The sultan's lilting giggle was so forceful that the fat on his neck wiggled. No, 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 my dear, that's not a man, that's an ape. This is my chess-playing monkey. That is a man, dear father. That is a man turned into an ape by a djinn. The sultan stood there for some time little gears in his brain clicking away as he put the pieces together. Well, that would explain some things, like the chess and the poetry. The poetry? Yes, my love, this monkey, man, poet, he wrote those poems you love so much. The sultan's daughter turned to me with an expression I cannot describe. She came to my stool and knelt before it, placing my little paw in her hand and pressing it to her forehead. Your soul is most beautiful, dear man. Your words made me feel things nobody else could. I hoped we would meet, but would never dare ask. And now, here you are, twisted and formed by fate. I will save you. I swear it. 
The sultan scratched a bug bite on his neck, and his daughter ran to her chambers and emerged with rare herbs, small animal bones, and a great black book. She crushed the herbs and made me eat them, threw the bones, and read from the book. I had never seen magic like this, my ladies. This daughter of the sultan was a great sorceress. She spent the entire day chanting, reading, and performing rituals, until finally a dark cloud gathered over the garden, and black smoke crept down from it until it formed the shape of the jinn who had cursed me. He seemed confused too, and when the sultan's daughter demanded I be released, he laughed and threw fire at her. She threw her hand up, and as if it were made of water, the fire was quenched. They went back and forth like this for some time. The sultan hid under the chess table, but I was riveted. He spewed black fire from his fingertips, and she quenched it with softly spoken words in long dead tongues. I watched them fight until the sun met the western wall, and just as the sultan's daughter got the upper hand in one last petty act of violence, the jinn threw a ball of fire and sparks at her, and it set her ablaze. I leapt at the jinn, and he slashed me across the eye with his great claws. But that distraction was enough to give the sultan's daughter her chance. In a desperate, heroic act, she formed a blade of water in the air, water she could have used to save herself, and sliced the jinn in twain, burning to death on the spot. The jinn dead, I emerged from the ground a man again, but a deeply sad and wounded one. The sultan, despondent, blamed me for the whole affair. I, of course, told him everything, the whole truth, and he decided that because I had found the Crystal Palace, because I had loved the woman within it, and because I had enchanted his daughter so with my poetry, that the blame for her death must lay with me. He could not bring himself to kill his favorite chess opponent, and the man his daughter loved, so he cast me out. He told me to leave the palace, but to stay in Baghdad, should he ever feel stricken by the need for chess or poetry. What else could I be expected to do? I left the palace, shaved my head and beard, and made these streets outside your gates my home. I wandered Baghdad just this night, I met these men just this night, and here I stand, once again in circumstances quite beyond my comprehension. The sun was beginning to crest along the eastern windows of the manor as the three women consulted one another. The owner stepped forward. As you have told the truth, and as your stories are quite remarkable, we feel kinship in each of your plight. You are all free to go. The porter sighed with great relief, but the dervishes did not. They looked at one another, then at the women. None of the tension had lifted. The first dervish, whose life had passed in a single night with a woman of ash, spoke. My ladies, we are grateful for your mercy, we truly are, but you must know the night can't end like this. The second dervish, who had braved the seas, the mountains, and even the sky to know the truth behind the forbidden, spoke. We've told you our tales. We beg you now to tell us yours. The third dervish, who possessed the soul of a lover and a poet, who had watched his future die so that he might live, spoke. Kill us if you must, dear host, but what else can we be expected to do? We ask again to know your stories, the story of the dogs and the scars. 
There was a silence so utter in the main hall of the manor that each person could hear the other's heartbeat. The owner stood up, approached the three dervishes, saw the resolve in their eyes, and spoke. I was daughter of the greatest merchant sailor who ever lived. As the eldest of his three daughters, I inherited his fortune and used it to continue his work. I traveled far and wide, collecting spices, treasures, and stories. I was rich, but I was not happy. You see, no man seemed to meet my fancy. There were suitors, lovers, men of port, but they all seemed somehow pathetic. I could not give myself to any of them because they seemed so much less exciting than the open sea. My crew was sharp and well-trained, but they saw me as cold and their role on my ship as purely transactional. I paid well, I wasn't cruel, and that was enough. My sisters openly resented me. There's no other way to say it. I ensured they had every material thing they could want, but they hated me for taking father's fortune and insisted on joining me on my ship, as it was, in their words, just as much theirs as mine. One day we came upon a new city, a port town in the southeast of the Indian coast. It was quite hidden, but my eyes are sharp and I saw the glimmer of a temple roof through the trees. We made port, but were immediately struck by how quiet this port was. No other boats, no men working the docks, nothing, just silence. The men and my sisters took this as a terrible omen. They refused to set foot in this place. I told them I understood, but I was going. I made my way through the empty streets. Still nobody. The houses were made of black stone, and on each wall were intricate inscriptions that shimmered with some magic like an old scar. I made my way to the upper section of the city, when I heard, ever so faintly, the sound of prayer. I hurried now through the narrow empty streets, across the gardens to the mosque whose temple I had spotted through the trees. I'm a pious woman, so when I entered the mosque, though I could hear the sweet voice of recitation of the holy book so clearly, I knelt before Mecca and prayed earnestly that I would discover the mystery of this place. When my prayer was done, I realized that the voice was now coming from behind me. This voice was magnificent, soft and deep, firm and inspiring in its praise to God with the blessed words. Welcome, sister. Those were the first words the love of my life ever spoke to me. He was a prince of this empty place, which he explained was once full of people, people who were good, hard-working, and honest, but did not worship in the mosque with him. Not even his parents, the king and queen, would join him in prayer. You pray enough for all of us, they would joke. One day, as he performed the call to prayer in the mosque's minaret, he saw a light emerge from the clouds. It began as a twinkle in the eye, and soon was a flash of blinding holy light. He knelt right there in the tower and prayed for a full day. He went down into the mosque and fasted, spending every waking moment reciting the Quran. And here he has been ever since, not eating or drinking, sustained only by God's strength, until I and only I should arrive, the first person he has seen in many years, knelt in prayer before him. Surely, he said, I was meant to be with him, and he was with me. I agreed. We prayed for another full day, then set off together. He was beautiful. As beautiful as anything I had ever seen in all of my travels. His eyes were oceans which I longed to sail, his lips rose petals which I longed to taste. When we came to my ship and I announced that we were going home, the crew were astonished, but they cheered and welcomed my new husband to their rank. My sisters, though. 
I cannot say why my sisters did what they did, and they now haven't the power to tell me. I knew they were jealous, but to condemn themselves to such an act. My sisters waited until my husband was asleep, then bound him, gagged him, and carried him out to the bridge. I heard them struggling with his writhing body, and emerged from my cabin just in time to see them hoist him over the side. Without thinking, I ran at them. They scattered, and I leapt over the edge into the sea after him. I do not remember what happened next, my guess. I awoke on the shore of a small island in the middle of the sea. This island was so small, I could see the whole of it just by standing. I knelt in the pristine, untouched sand and wept in my prayers. I had never, and God willing, never will, ever feel such pain again. In my haze of grief, I sat on the beach, reciting prayer under my breath, wondering if, like the man I loved, I could be sustained by God's strength alone. That is, until I saw from the corner of my eye a little sparrow. It was hopping along the beach frantically as a viper slithered behind it. The sparrow's wing was broken and its tail feathers had been bitten off. I could accept no further cruelty from this world. I got to my feet and, without hesitation, I stamped on the viper's head and it died on the spot. I was so exhausted from cruelty, from hunger, from sadness, that I collapsed right there on the beach. I had a dream about that little sparrow. It appeared before me and hopped along, beckoning me. I followed it along an infinite beach, the sky swirling in infinite fractals of light and dark magic. When finally the sparrow stopped, I looked up to see a manor, and around the manor, the city of Baghdad. At this moment, I woke up from my dream, but not on the beach of that little island. I was still in front of the manor. I was astonished. I stepped inside the gate and saw forty men-at-arms standing at attention as if expecting me. And as I stepped into the main hall, there were two black dogs, each bound by a golden chain about the neck. Welcome home, said a voice like thunder. I whirled around and saw the little sparrow. Home? Yes, home. I am a chick. You have saved my life, and so I saved yours. I brought you here from that wretched island. I furnished this place with the wealth that is yours, and I punished the sisters who killed your precious beloved. I turned and looked at the dogs. My sisters? They will never harm you again. Please, I said. Turn them back. No! Boomed the djinn. The room grew dark, and smoke began to fill my lungs. Your puerile ingratitude aside, this is the justice I demand for their sins. And if you wish them to live at all, you will do as I say. I am a pious woman, but I am also human. I listened to what the jinn said for the sake of my sister's lives. Each day, said the jinn, I would whip them three hundred times with the golden chains, three hundred times as hard as I could, or he would know, and they would die. The dervishes were silent, as the owner wiped a tear from her eye and stepped back. The keeper came forward and spoke. I was a dancer. My body was coveted by everyone who came to see me use it. This made me very wealthy and very desired. One morning, as I ate in my garden, an old crone came through my front gate. 
I greeted her kindly and offered her some food and coin. Both she refused. I have not come to beg, my lady. I have come to bargain. She grinned a toothless smile at me and said that her son had seen me dance and was enchanted by me. This was not rare, of course, but I did wonder why he had not come himself to offer his compliments. No, said the woman. He does not offer his compliments. He offers his hand. I laughed, but she did not. I placed my hand on her hunched shoulder and explained that I was not in the market for suitors. At this moment she said something in a language I did not know, and moving faster than I had ever seen an old woman move, blew some powder in my face. It smelled so distinct, sweet and cloying with a bitter afternote. He will come to meet you in the garden here tonight. You'll marry him then. I said nothing as she left me in a daze. I did not move until the sun went down, and when it did, I saw him approach the same gate the crone had left from. I cannot describe him, except to say that I found him beautiful beyond my own comprehension of such a word. I would have done anything for him, and when he took my hand, I insisted that we be married that very night. I was so happy in those first days. I never thought I would make a diligent wife, but I did my best to make him happy. He was a jealous man. He was also quite bad with money. He would gamble and spend, and when he asked for his name to be put on the house, I agreed without question. But even in my state of bliss, I wondered about the future. His jealousy was the biggest issue, though. He insisted no other man could so much as touch me. When you aren't the princess of a sultan of Baghdad, this can be a difficult feat to accomplish. I would have to sneak off to the market and be back before he noticed, which wasn't too hard considering he slept all the time. One morning I was walking through the market, trying to find some new silk. My husband insisted I cover myself, and I agreed to do this because I was now a married woman and my body was only for him and God. I saw a beautiful sheet of black woven silk with little stars sewn into the fabric. I smiled and approached and asked how much it was. The man who ran the shop was very old and smelled strange. I asked again how much for the silk, and he only grinned a toothless smile at me. There is no price for such a pretty thing, he said. Only a kiss will do. I offered again to pay any price he asked, shaking my bag of coins to show I could pay. Only a kiss will do, he repeated. I looked around the market inside, staring at the beautiful fabric. I said a prayer under my breath and said, All right then, a kiss on the cheek. The old man giggled and approached, extending his neck and brandishing his cheek. I leaned forward and pursed my lips, and he, moving faster than I had ever seen an old man move, twisted his head around and clamped his mouth around my cheek. I screamed and fell back. I could feel the blood dribbling down my chin. When I arrived home, I tried to hide my face behind a veil. I pretended everything was fine and helped my husband out of the bed. He was still drunk from the night before and as he stumbled down the hall towards the washing area, he stopped to face me. Aren't we lucky to have each other? he slurred. I bowed my head and nodded. Horror took me when he slipped his hands under the veil to cut my face in them. He saw the fear burst in my eyes, and I saw the anger flash in his. He felt blood on his palm and wrenched the veil away to reveal the wound. I still don't understand it. That man had no teeth, but there on my cheeks were the unmistakable marks of a human bite. I sobbed and begged him for mercy as he dragged me to the garden. 
I will not explain what happened next. You have seen my body. I cannot dance, but in his cruel way there is respite in this story. For you see, when I awoke from his tortures, I found myself on the market street. He had left me there, naked and bloody. All my limbs had been shattered. I would never dance again, but because God is merciful, and because fate is kind, she found me. The keeper pointed to the buyer, who bowed her head. She picked me up and brought me to this house where no man can touch me, and in return I taught her to dance. And for my lady, the owner, I am as a wife. I keep the house. When she hosts, I care for the guest's needs. When she grieves, I grieve with her. That is my story. It has no gin or jeweled palaces, no black mountains or sparrows, but it is mine and mine to keep, and now it is yours to keep as well. The owner stood now, eyes firm. And you will keep it, or we will know. Tales like ours would create a rumor, and should that rumor come back to us, as all rumors must, know that nothing you have been through will prepare you for what is to come. The three dervishes all prostrated themselves and thanked the women. The light of the morning was warming the stones of the gates as the three made their way to the streets of Baghdad, never to speak to one another again. The porter was guided by the arm by the buyer, who smiled warmly and tucked her hair behind her ears when the porter asked what her story was. Tell me your story first, then I'll tell you mine, said the buyer. But I have no story, said the porter. I am a porter of Baghdad, not an exiled prince or a brave sailor or a great scholar. If you have no story, said the buyer, caressing the porter's rough cheek as he stepped through the gate, then neither have I. The porter grinned and turned to face the sunrise. The dervishes were nowhere to be seen, and as he walked toward the market to get on with his day, had he turned to look, he might have noticed that the manor was not a manor, but a ruin, and had been for quite some time. The morning wind was billowing the curtains across the marble floor of Shariar's bedchamber as the sun crept over the eastern wall. Shahrazad was running her fingers through the hair of her sleeping sister, curled in her lap. The mad king watched the singing birds flutter by his window, holding his beard in his clenched fist. The day has dawned, said Shahrazad, and the time has come. Hmm? muttered Shariar, as if waking from a dream. What's come? What? The dawn, O king. And so, my death. The king grimaced. I want to know the buyer's story. The porter's too. I'm afraid we haven't the time for fairy tales, great king of the Sassanids, said Shahrazad serenely. By your decree, the tongue that speaks these stories must be severed. No, said the king. I am king. My decrees are what I mean them to be. You will not die this morning, Shahrazad. You will return tonight to finish the tale. Then I'll kill you. As you wish, said Shahrazad, gently waking her sister to take her home. You will return tonight. I will return tonight, 
to finish the story. Shahrazad turned and smiled at the king. The knights have existed for centuries, told from mouth to mouth, generation to generation, encompassing the values and folkloric traditions of the golden age of the Arab world. These traditions and stories drew from East and North African myths, Chinese, Cambodian, and Baltic traditions, and particularly Indian traditional storytelling, in particular the Panchatantra, animal stories of Sanskrit verse also characterized by traditions of nesting narratives within other narratives. A great deal of the English and French-speaking world has long viewed the knights through the lens of Orientalism, a form of colonial bigotry which paints the rich tapestry of Asian cultures and traditions as a homogenized, exotic, uncivilized source of mysticism and superstition. Most people in the Arab and Farsi-speaking world grew up with knight stories. The French translated them for Victorian audiences hungry for what they perceived as strange tales of savage lands. In fact, the French were so enamored with the knights that they invented a few tales, such as Aladdin and Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. Those stories became so popular that they made their way back to the Arab and Persian world, becoming some of the most popular night stories despite their European origins. The number of tales advertised in the West is just over a thousand are, in fact, closer to about 240. Most traditions conform to a specific order, though each telling is quite different. The most popular translations in the English-speaking world are those of Richard Burton and Andrew Lang. However, if you're looking to read the Knights yourself, I do encourage you to seek out Hussein Hadawi or Yasmin Seeley's versions, which are two of my favorite editions. The Knights were and are a great inspiration for both my interest in storytelling and indeed this podcast project, and there are a few things as rewarding as exploring the Knights and allowing yourself to sink deeper and deeper into them. The story I told today is known as The Three Women of Baghdad. It's my favorite knight and an exemplary specimen of nested storytelling. One story cradled within another, cradled within another. The Three Women of Baghdad has been the basis for hundreds of plays, retellings, songs, paintings, and prints, while not the most famous knight, almost certainly the most influential. The knights have always stubbornly resisted a single canon. The most prevalent way in which these stories pass from one person to the next is as bedtime stories told from memory, where the details are changed, rethought, or invented whole cloth by the teller. In this way, Shahrazad is the paragon of the storyteller, the patron saint of stories, an avatar for our oldest and most fundamental tradition. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash breakfastwithgilgamesh. And if you'd like to read fiction by your humble host and author, accompanied by the incredible work of talented artists, you can find it at zkleverton.com. A special thanks to Sam Beck, who designed my beautiful logo, Thomas Holden, who composed the wonderful music you heard throughout, and to all the friends and partners who made this project possible with their time and insight. Next episode, Death Comes to Troy. This is Breakfast with Gilgamesh.